The story is told of a middle-aged woman who had a heart attack and was rushed to the hospital in critical condition. When she got to the hospital in critical condition, she had one of those near-death experiences. As she appeared before God and she saw God, she said, God, is, is this it? And he said, no. He said, in fact, you have 40 more years, 8 more months, 3 more days, and 6 more hours. So, as she comes to and she begins to recover, she thought, wow, 40 more years, I might as well take advantage of this time in the hospital. So she had some other work done while she was there. <laughs> a little liposuction, a facelift, breast augmentation. She just went through, did the whole thing, had her hairdresser come in, cut her hair, dye her hair, man, the whole works, man. And when she was ready to go, she was feeling fine. So she was all excited. The day she's discharged, she goes running across the street to her family who are waiting on the other side. She gets hit by an ambulance, killed instantly. She appears before God. She said, God, I don't understand. You said I had 40 more years and 8 more months and 3 more days and whatever hours. I don't understand. What happened? He went, oh, sorry. I didn't recognize you. <laughs> you know, often in life it's easy to miss the obvious. And there are times when uh, some things are a little tougher to recognize than others. And uh, the failure to recognize uh, what should be obvious can be funny, as in the opening story, but also it can be very tragic, um, as is evidenced by some of the stories that I have heard or read recently. For example, in New England, several friends walked across a frozen lake only to discover the ice was too thin to support their body weight, and three of these young boys drowned in the process. I read of a, the failure to recognize avalanche conditions in Canada, led to the deaths of six skiers who were dropped off to do some helicopter skiing. Or the failure to recognize black ice conditions in the Midwest led to a hundred car pileup. See, we live in a world where the failure to recognize the signs can lead to tragic consequences, as we saw in what we're now calling our war on terrorism. And as true as this is in the physical world, it is equally true in the spiritual realm. While failure to respond in the physical world can lead to uh, physical consequences, injury, and even death, failure to act in the spiritual realm leads to eternal consequences. And one of the great spiritual dangers of our day is the potential failure of the church in fulfilling the primary purpose for which she exists. And one has to ask the question, why does the church exist? You know, one of the things that I've always loved to do throughout my life, much to the chagrin of many, is ask the question, why? Why? I mean, you know, and, and any of us who have children know how much fun the why question can be. You know, well, why do I have to go to bed now? Why do I have to eat my vegetables? Why can't I cross my eyes like this? You know, why, why do I have to brush my teeth? Why do I have to clean my room? Why do I have to do my homework? Why do I have to be in by midnight? And on and on it goes. And in every area of life, the why question is there. Why did he or she get the promotion? You know, why did I not make the team? Why are not we in the playoffs? Why do you want it done, you know, one way? And in the construction industry, the, our favorite question is, well, sir, why do you want it done that way? Because the inspector who was out here last week wanted it done another way. Which never gets a good answer. <laughs> or like, for example, on Friday, I heard many guys saying, why in the world is every woman in the world wearing red today? 
That's why. <laughs> you know, but before we get too frustrated with the question why, I've come to understand that asking why is the catalyst or the springboard to gaining greater knowledge. You know, if you stop and think about it, asking why, it's the question that leads both the asker and the one who's being asked to more solid ground. Have you ever been so frustrated in trying to explain your position to another person? And as you tried to explain it and they were asked why, you came up with the infamous, famous, arrogant, and ignorant popular statement, why? I'll tell you why. Because I said so. That's why. <laughs> I mean, if you've ever been there, you know how frustrating. But why? Well, because I said so. And, and, and that's the, 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 the answer that if you ever get that answer, that's because the person you asked the question doesn't have a clue why they're asking you to do what they're asking you to do. You know, why? Because I said so. Well, wait a minute. You know, one of the great truths in the Bible is that the why question is asked over and over again. I pulled out a Strong's Concordance the other day in the book. If you've ever seen it, it's about this big and it's about this thick. And in the concordance, it's an exhaustive concordance. Every word in the Bible is listed alphabetically with every reference next to it. And if you want to have some, some fun, go and look at the question. Just look at the word why. And see how many times why is asked in the Bible. For example, here's just some random things. Uh, God asked Cain, why are you angry? The angels asked Abram, why did Sarah laugh? Moses asked himself, why is the bush not burned up? Nathan, when confronting David, asked, why have you despised the word of the Lord? Job asked God, why did I not just die at birth? The why question seemed to be Jesus' favorite question to ask. He was the one who asked, why do you worry? He said, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and not see the log in yours? He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Why do you not believe me? One of his last statements on the cross was, why? Why have you forsaken me? And the angels met those coming at the empty tomb with the question, why do you seek the living? among the dead. Why? The question why is basically shouting to each one of us when, when we ask why, it's think about it. Stop and think about what's being asked. Why? Think about what you want to do, what you want to say. As I was studying and putting this together, the first passage that came to my mind and the question why has to do with the fact that as human beings, God has created us with the capacity, the ability to reason. And as I was studying, the first verse I thought of, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are like red, like crimson, they will be like wool. Come and let us reason together. Think about what God has done in our lives for those who have come to the cross and trusted in Christ. Though your sins were as scarlet, I have made them white as snow. Let us reason together. Let us think about what God is saying to us. Let's ask this question. Why does the church exist? What is the primary purpose in the church? And as I ask that question, I hope many of you are thinking and your wheels are turning and you're thinking about some things like, well, the primary purpose is to share the gospel with the world that needs to hear that they're separated and sinful and alienated from God. I would hope that some of you are thinking to have an opportunity to come and regularly worship our Savior and to be instructed in the Word of God. 
The church exists to bring hope to those who are hurting, to be a lighthouse in the community, to equip saints for the work of ministry, to declare and support wholesome values for our homes and moral and ethical purity, the dignity of human beings, godly living, healthy marriages, integrity. That we would think the purpose is to send the gospel around the world through missionary efforts. That the purpose of the church is to reach today's youth and challenge them to make Christ the center of their lives and their choice of a career and their plans for the future. Maybe the purpose of the church is to get together and pray. The purpose of the church is to comfort the grieving and encourage the lonely and to feed the hungry. To minister to the handicapped and help the aged, the abused and the confused. To stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. To model a standard of authentic righteousness. To teach the scriptures with a view of how to live in a manner worthy of our calling. And as we ask, what is the purpose of the church? Many of those things came to some of your minds, if not most of our minds. And yet at the same time, that's not the primary purpose. Those are all things we need to be doing and to be busy at. Those are all things that God calls us to do, commands us to do in his word. But it's not the primary purpose. Do you know what the primary purpose of our church, the church, is? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we find a very clear answer for our primary purpose as a church and also as individuals. Our primary purpose in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 is very simple. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's our primary purpose. To do anything that we do. The simplest of terms, there's our answer to why we exist. The church's primary purpose is to glorify the Lord our God. He says, whether, whether we're eating or drinking, hurting or helping, serving or struggling, the activities uh, are limitless, but the purpose remains the same. No matter what we do, whether we're doing this or whatever. Again, it's, it's so open. Whatever you are personally, male or female, adult or youth or child, whatever country you find yourself in, whatever circumstances, the goal is to glorify God. That's our purpose. The activity as well as the motive behind it must be our ultimate purpose to glorify our God. You know, having personally had the opportunity to visit Athens, Greece and a surrounding countryside, uh, we stopped at Corinth where we saw firsthand the remains of a city that once had a glory problem. It was a city of people who took the glory for themselves, for all their achievements, They boasted of their achievements. And Corinth represents the finest of Greek culture and learning. Uh, They boasted of their achievements. The architecture was ornate. It was decorative. It indicated a flair for life and for living. And it was a pursuit of, of pleasure that we find throughout the letters that Paul writes to the Corinthians. And the same hedonistic behavior and intellectual arrogance of the unbelieving neighbors, unfortunately, was true of those who professed faith in Jesus Christ. 
You know, the letters are filled with one of warning about factions and divisions. Uh, It's a letter that warns about the abuse of spiritual gifts, of the tragedy of divorce in their culture, of sexual immorality, of the absence of love. Paul addresses all of these issues to the the, uh, Corinthians, but he was basically implying throughout all of this, this one question. And it's a question that I want to challenge you to ask yourself, and that's this. Whatever we do, the question is, is what I'm doing bringing glory to my God? Is that division bringing glory to God? Is that agenda bringing glory to God? Is your behavior bringing glory to God? Are the words counting out of your mouth bringing glory to God? Are your activities bringing glory to God? And as we think about these things, we need to recognize and understand that really that's the question that we must ask ourselves on a much more regular basis. Is my business bringing glory to God and how we conduct ourselves? Is our marriage bringing glory to God as other people witness and observe it? Is our relationship with our children and the interaction that we have, is it bringing glory to God where others will want to know our Savior? Is my life bringing glory to God? See, the primary purpose then of the church is, is the church bringing glory to God? See, in the same letter, a couple of chapters back in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul dealing with the problem of sexual immorality. He says in verse 18, flee immorality, which was all forms of sexual sin. Because every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? He says, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Jesus Christ died upon the cross and He shed His blood so that you and I could be freed from sin And made alive to God. And the question that he asked is a very simple one. Are the activities of your body glorifying to God? Are the words, as I said, that come out of your mouth, are the things that you look at and observe with your eyes, are the things you dwell on in your mind, are they glorifying to God? Because Paul then said to the Philippians, you know what? Don't don't dwell on those things that aren't so. But if anything is good and everything is lovely and of good repute, let your mind dwell on those things. Take captive, he says to the Corinthians later on, he says, take captive your thought life to the obedience of Christ. When you find yourself starting to drift off and think about things that aren't pleasing to God, take captive of that thought immediately. God, forgive me of even thinking anything like that. And may my mind dwell on what you have to say. That's why we've got to be careful to meditate upon the Word of God day and night, being careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will find your way successful or prosperous. That's why God says to meditate on His Word, to memorize His Word, to to chew on the Word of God daily, moment by moment, because as the enemy throws temptation in our face or thoughts that aren't pleasing to God, immediately the answer that we have as the Lord Jesus answered the devil is with with the sound words of Scripture. So when we struggle, even as we sit, and you know what's amazing is I've sat in church, I've stood in the pulpit, and and thoughts have come into my mind, and you go, where did that come from? Lord, forgive me. Capture that thought to the obedience of Christ 
and dwell on those things that are good before God. And the Word of God is good. God is good. We need to dwell on those things. And so as we look at this, turn to Romans chapter 15 and see a similar thought. That all that we do should be to the glory of God. Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 7. He says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. You know, the Bible was full of statements like this to the glory of God. I challenge you when you have an opportunity just to look up in your concordance the word glory and look at how many times it's mentioned throughout Scripture. To glory of God, to honor God, to exalt God, to lift His name up before the world in which we live, to bring glory to God in how we conduct ourselves and what we say. The purpose of the church, the purpose of this church, therefore, is not to build massive monuments Uh, to double our attendance in a certain period of time, to merely make a good impression, to provide, you know, good music or activities for everyone or have some great sermon or whatever, though nothing is wrong with any of those things if they're all uh, done with the right motives and the proper perspective. But in my opinion, as I read through Scripture, the primary purpose of the church is to glorify God. So that when people come in contact with us as individuals or collectively as a church, they walk out of here and they go, to God be all the glory. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I don't know how this works, but I'm convinced of this. That men and women, when they see God get the glory, recognize that as it is. And they also can recognize when it's all about us. When it's all about us. It's all about me. It's all about you. It's all about us. And we like to take credit for things. And we want to make sure that they recognize and understand what we had to do with it. And how we work to get this done. And it's all about us. And you know what? But when we are genuinely humble before God. And exalt our Savior. And lift up His name to the world. They see that. They notice that. Humility is such a rare commodity in the world we live in because sin nature shouts, but what about me? What's in it for me? Hey, I did this. I did that. Did you notice what I did? We live in a world that we want to focus on us. And yet God says to work in such a way that they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, it's been said that humility is not thinking less of ourselves than we should. Humility is not thinking of ourselves at all. And I like that. Not thinking of ourselves at all. To give God the glory is as old as Scripture itself, and it has been as a result taught throughout church history. Consider the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It was devised in 1647. The first question the Scottish Presbyterians were to ask young students learning theology at the feet of their teachers was this. The question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer by the students was, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God 
and enjoy Him forever. Understanding the primary purpose of the church, that it's to glorify God, the question is, how do we do that? And that's what I want to focus the remaining of our time on how do we give glory to God? And as I was going through the scriptures, I came across John 5, 23, where Jesus said, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The way that you and I glorify God is that we glorify God the Father by exalting His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we glorify God. By exalting His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when was the last time you gave the Lord Jesus Christ the glory, the credit, the praise, the honor for something in your life? Not God or the Lord, but specifically referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. When was the last time you gave the Lord Jesus Christ glory in your business dealings, or in your home, or family, in your health, or in your finances? That you exalted the name of Jesus, or did you take the glory yourself? Yes, we've worked hard, we've done this, we've done that, I did this, they did that, he did that, she did that. What about the Lord Jesus Christ? See, why exalt Jesus and not just be politically correct and just say, God has blessed us, the Lord has blessed us. You know, after all, God is not offensive. Many of you have probably read in the newspapers where many city halls and city councils are eliminating or trying to eliminate the name of Jesus in the prayers that are conducted at city council meetings. Because Jesus identifies a specific God which I, th- I think is great that they recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ is God, the God of Christianity. That's great that they recognize it. But unfortunately, then they say, but we don't want Jesus' name mentioned because it's offensive to those who do not believe in Jesus Christ as God. So if we say God, then anybody in a room can just think whatever they want at that moment in time what God we're referring to. And the reason that the Bible teaches that if we do not honor the Son, we do not honor the Father, is because we live in a world that needs to be told very specifically that the Lord Jesus Christ is God of heaven and earth. And there is no other gods, for the Lord is one, and there is no other God. So when we look at this, the question is, why exalt? There's our question, why? Well, why should we exalt Or glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'll give you some reasons found in the book of Colossians. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. God eats peaches and cream. That's how I remember it. And I don't know why, but once someone told me that, some things you wish you never heard. Because then you start sharing them and you don't even, you know, it's like whatever. So, but God eats peaches and cream, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, why should we glorify, exalt, honor the Lord Jesus Christ? This passage will give us seven reasons. Colossians 1 verse 15, and he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. You know, one of the things that has always fascinated me as we've traveled around the world is, and the re, are the reasons why certain cultures worship their, what I would say, their gods. For example, uh, we're in Tahiti a while back and we were doing some type of tour out with a group or whatever. And one of the things that was fascinating was the person who was taking us on the tour made a point to say as we were on the island of Tahiti and in Papiete and looking across and across is the island of Morea. And one of the guides that we were with said, you know, the story, their legend has it that one of our gods, as Morea began to drift out into the sea, that one of our gods took a spear and threw it into the top of the mountain and, and, and uh, with, the, with a you know, rope attached to it and grabbed it and kept Morea from floating out into the sea. And, you know, when you sit, you know, quietly and you listen to these things and, and they are very offended, you know, if you're not reverent toward their stories of their gods and their history. And I always think it's kind of fascinating to me that as Christians, we rarely tell anyone about Jesus. And yet when we go all over the world, people are, they can't wait to tell you about, quote, their gods and their history. And, and when we, we don't tell the people about Jesus because we don't want to offend others. So we talk about him when we do almost apologetically. You know, when others use his name in vain, uttering Jesus Christ to any or everything that bothers them, we just sit in silence. And so I would challenge you the next time at work or somewhere where somebody takes our Lord Jesus Christ's name in vain. And somebody says, Jesus Christ, look up in the air and say, where? Where? And let's say, what, what are you talking about? you got a great opportunity to share about the second coming. And if you're going to share about the second coming, it meant there was a first coming, and then you could share about the first coming. It's beautiful. It's a great segue. You know, where? And I mean, I'll tell you what, construction sites, we do that all day long. You know, hey, look, where? Where? I don't see him. What are you talking about? And then, you know, it causes people to stop and to think. You know, last month when I was shopping for a Valentine's Day card for my wife, I just wanted to see if you're still with me. So, well, so it was this past week, but it wasn't Friday. It was Thursday. But this last, this past Thursday, I was shopping for a Valentine's Day card for Linda. I read the following in a card that reminded me of what we're discussing here, our hesitancy to, to, to share certain things. But anyway, it says, that, it says, I love you. The guy goes, I love you. I'd shout it from the highest mountaintop. I love you. I'd shout it from the city streets. Then it says, I love you. I'll say it very quietly, very, very quietly from my office phone I'm kind of funny that way. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, oh yeah, I'll shout it from the mountaintops, you know. You know, why should, why should we go and shout it from the mountaintops that Jesus Christ is Lord? 
You know, we don't have a problem sharing it with people that we're comfortable with. We just have a problem sharing it with people that don't agree with us. And so as we look at this, here's seven reasons. We'll go through one by one. The first one in Colossians chapter 1, we read this. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Reason number one. You got your bulletin, you like to take notes. That's a little spot that we have there. We should glorify Jesus Christ because of His unique personhood. His unique personhood. He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15 Jesus was made human like us in appearance only, yet he was divine. Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh. He was both God and man. No one else in history has been able to make such a claim and then prove it true by his actions. Jesus Christ is God and man, and yet he did not sin. He was perfect. Perfect. That kind of uniqueness should cause us to fall at His feet and worship Him. Hebrews 1.6 says, Let all the angels of God worship Him. Now stop and think about this. Only God is worthy of such reverence to be worshipped. And God commands and commends the angels to bow down and worship at the feet of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3 states, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. You know, every image is a likeness, but every likeness is not an image. For example, two people can look alike, but not have the same parents. You know, I spoke at a men's retreat several years back, and in the midst of while I was speaking, they marched this guy up front to stand next to me. He looked like my twin brother. And, uh, and it's, it's like, you know, it's kind of one of those things you're doing this, you know, doing that. But, the, you know, while there was a likeness, there, there, it wasn't the same. And as we look at this, we recognize that Jesus Christ became a man to reveal God to us. He's not the Father, but He displays the Father. He's both human and divine, and His unique personhood should motivate us to fall at His feet and proclaim, as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. Jesus said that, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father am one. Why should we exalt and glorify Jesus Christ? Because, you know what, there's been no other person in the history of the world like Jesus Christ. God and man. Perfect. Divinity in human flesh. Taking on the appearance of man. Being made in the likeness of men. So that he could die upon the cross for the sins of the world. Why should we exalt Jesus Christ? Because he perfectly presents God to a fallen world. The second reason that we should exalt him is because of his preeminence. Notice in verse 15 again, it says that he is the firstborn of all creation. Because of his preeminence. He's firstborn. His preeminence should keep us from praising and worshiping ourselves. He comes first before anything or anyone. If you'll recall from our Who is Jesus series, and, and we've got those CDs and tapes, by the way, just to remind everybody that uh, we give away tapes, CDs, whatever. It all comes out of the general fund. You don't have to worry about designating for tape ministry or missions ministries or anything like that because everything will just come out of one budget. And so, therefore, you know what? Have at it. You know, if we can get the, the Word of God in the hands of people in a way that they'll listen, then we trust that God's Word will go out and not come back empty. 
So we're committed to do that. And if you recall, firstborn here doesn't refer to time, but to place or status. Romans 8.29 refers to being special as it does in Hebrews 1.6 where we read these words. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he, God says, and let the angels of God worship him. Jesus Christ, his preeminence, he's special, he's first, he's different than anybody and anybody else that's ever lived. Indicating the deity of the Lord Jesus. For God is a jealous God and he'll have no other gods before him. And yet here he commends and commands the angels of God to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is special. He comes first in, any, in everything and anything. And the question for you is this as it is for me. Does he come first in my life? The greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That we put God's will ahead of our own. Is that true of your life? Does God come first? Is Jesus Christ first in your life? Is he first in all your decisions? Is he first in your marriage and in your families, in your dating life, in your finances, in your health habits? Is he first in your business and in your attitudes and your words and in your deeds? Have you put Jesus Christ first? Do you go to Him before you make any decisions? Do you go to Him? Lord, is this the direction you want me to go? Lord, is this what you want me to do? Lord, show me in Your Word. Give me clarity. God, bring into my life godly people that I can get counsel because there's wisdom in a multitude and safety in a multitude of godly counsel. Let me go to Your Word. Let me go to Your throne and pray and seek wisdom because You tell me if I lack wisdom and I do, that if I come to You, that You'll give generously and above reproach and You won't criticize me for not knowing what I'm supposed to do because I don't know and I I need your help. Does he come first in everything that you do? Do you keep him first in your life? If you do, that's how you glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. A third thing is we should glorify Jesus Christ because of his power. Notice in verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him and all things for Him. Why should we exalt and glorify Jesus Christ? Because of His power. Think about it. Since Jesus Christ created all things, He Himself is uncreated because the word for or because tells us that he created all things and all things are under his control or his power. Turn with me just for a moment to the book of Matthew chapter 8. As I was going through this, I was reminded of the breakout in my particular uh, um, translation of the Bible. There's a breakout of different passages. And the word power jumped out at my mind as I was going through this because in Matthew chapter 8, we see that Jesus had power over defilement. Power over distance, power over disease, power over the disciples, power over the deep, power over demons. And in verse 23, we read these words, And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he himself was asleep. And they came to him, and they awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you timid, you men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? What kind of man is this? 
We've never met a man like this. That goes to his unique personhood. We never met a man like this, that the winds and the sea obey him. A few years back, I was on an air, on a, air, a flight um, going to a baseball chapel conference and I was reading my Bible and taking some notes for something I needed to prepare for. And the guy sitting next to me looked at me with that funny look on his face. And it's always interesting because you know kind of what's there, but you're not real sure what's going to come out. And finally, he said, do you believe what you're reading? I said, absolutely. He said, you, you're going to tell me, you believe stuff like Jesus walked on water? I said, yeah. I said, what's so hard about that? And he kind of gave me that look. I said, you know, Jesus walking on water is no big deal. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus created the water out of nothing. So what are you hung up on? I mean, what's tough here? That Jesus walked on the water. I mean, you know, you really want to be challenged by something. Think about it. He made it out of nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And bare or created. I mean, he took something that wasn't existing and brought it into existence. It's like, yeah, I, I don't know, what, what's the hard part here? And he kind of looked like, uh, I said, what is, what, I mean, don't you think it, it, since he made it, he can control it, he could walk on it? It's not that big a deal. I said, why, why don't you believe? And that's when he went, hey, well, it was nice talking to you. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it kept it pretty short at that point, you know. But think about what he's saying here, that, who is this man that the winds and the sea obey him? Disease and death didn't stop him. His power should cause us to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. On that trip when we were in Tahiti, uh, I had the opportunity, and, and, and this was something that I saw the Apostle Paul do in Acts chapter 17. If you've got your Bibles, look at it. But what happened was, as this, as this guy was talking about, you know, the God who threw the spear that held the island of Morea and thus preserved tourism forever in Tahiti... Um, <laughs> They held the island of, you know, of Morea. I said, man, you know what? I said, that, that's really something. But you know what's even more incredible to me is that our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, created the islands and the sea. What's tougher to do? Throw a spear and save one or create them all from nothing? And it's a beautiful opportunity as the Apostle Paul saw in the city of Athens as he looked around in verse 22 and he stood in the midst of the Aragopagus and said, men of Athens... I observe that you're religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in the temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed boundaries and times and their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own prophets poets have said, for we are also his offspring." Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, that unique person, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. 
The Apostle Paul took a current, everyday, common situation and turned it into an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God has called all men to repent. To have a change of heart and a change of mind. As we go back to Colossians 1, it's interesting as we see this because what, what Paul has done here in Colossians also, the Greek philosophers thought that, that everything had needed a primary cause an instrumental cause and a final cause. A primary cause, instrumental cause, or and a final cause. A primary cause or plan, an instrumental cause, which is the power, or a final cause, which was the purpose. And here he tells them and all of us that Jesus Christ is the primary cause. He planned creation. He is the instrumental cause and in that he produced creation and that he is the final cause, and that the purpose was he did it for his own pleasure. See, Paul exalted the Lord Jesus in his answer as the word of God always does. Number four, we should exalt the Lord Jesus Christ because of his preexistence. We saw that he is before all things in verse 17. Since Jesus created all things, it's only reasonable to conclude that he existed before all things came into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That he created all things, and apart from him, nothing has come into being. The pre-existence of the Lord Jesus Christ should cause us to glorify and worship Him. As He said at that particular moment in John 8, 58, even before Abraham existed, I am the eternal God. I am. We should glorify the Lord Jesus because of His pre-existence. He has always existed. He claimed equality with God. And God doesn't have to explain His existence. He just is. I was doing a Bible study at Rams Camp several years ago and I had a guy come up to me and say, okay, who made God? You know, it sounds like a pretty difficult question. But the answer is very simple. There is no answer. God, in the beginning, God. He existed. God. He created. God. He was there before we were here. He was there before everything He created was in existence. God exists and He doesn't explain Himself. He doesn't have to to us. He exists. Period. And we all exist because of Him. That's why we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. A fifth reason to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ is because of His wonderful providence. Notice in verse 17. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Don't you love that? Hebrews 1.3 says, And upholds all things by the word of His power. Do you ever wonder sometimes, like, why? it goes back to those questions, why? You know, why does the earth stay in orbit? Why do the moons in the universe stay in their orbits? Why does the sun stay where it is? Why do the planets remain in orbit? Why, you know, why don't the stars fall from, from heaven to earth? You know, why don't the oceans, if you ever go to the beach, like, what, why, why doesn't the ocean just keep coming? I mean, if it knew how deep it was, and what it could do. Could you imagine the oceans could hold us hostage? I mean, if they really, you know, if they really knew. You know, why does it stop? They said, well, we know that the moons control the tides. Well, who controls the moon? Do you realize that everything has order and everything is sustained by the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what the Word of God tells us. And in Him, all things hold together. He is the glue of the universe. 
in him all things hold together. You know, it's such an insult to our God when people give credit to Mother Nature and Father Time. I mean, it's like, you know, Mother Nature and Father Time. You think that, you know, they, they date one another. It's like, who, who's Mother Nature, who's Father Time? It's an insult to our God to ever refer to anything as Mother Nature or Father Time. Just get rid of that altogether and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus holds it all together. The Word of God is clear and it teaches all the laws of the universe are being sustained by the Lord Jesus. His mighty power and loving concern for mankind. He got the whole world in His hand. He got the whole wide world in His hand. You know, I even wrote that down when I was studying. And I got little musical bars and notes next to it. So I remember that it was a song. But, you know, what's interesting is that a guy took a group of people through an atomic laboratory and explained how all matter was composed of rapidly moving electric particles. The tourists studied models of molecules and were amazed to learn that matter is made up primarily of space. During the question period, one visitor asked, if this is the way matter works, what holds it all together? And you know what? They didn't have an answer. But we do. We've got an answer. Jesus, the Lord Jesus, holds it all together. And that's why we exalt his name. Number six, we should glorify Jesus Christ because of of his exalted place of authority. Notice, he is the head of the body, the church. The purpose of the church in exalting Jesus Christ is that he is the head and we are members of his body. Diverse, uniquely gifted, uniquely enabled and empowered to do the work that he's called us to do so that he gets all the glory and that he gets all the praise. The body, the church is composed of all true believers. When a person trusts in Christ, He is immediately baptized by the Holy Spirit into his body, 1 Corinthians 12. And Jesus Christ is the head. We are members of his spiritual body. In Greek usage, the head meant source and origin as well as leader and ruler. Jesus Christ is the origin of the church. And he is also the ruler, the exalted one. I know some of you have seen the exalted Puba sign out in front. Now, I always wonder who's going to park there, you know, and just kind of wondering someday, you know, oh, you did, sir. Well, I see you humbly raise your hand. <laughs> so, but I do so with all humility. <laughs> but, but it's interesting because as we look at this, we recognize that, you know, Jesus Christ is the exalted one. He is, we are to honor him, to glorify him. You know, the head of the church is not a pastor. It's not a bishop, an elder, a priest, or a pope. The head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. And to him, we must all submit. God is pleased when Jesus is recognized as Lord of the church. God is pleased when Jesus Christ is recognized as the Lord of our lives. God is pleased when Jesus Christ is recognized as the Lord of our family. God is pleased when Jesus Christ is recognized as the Lord of our businesses. God is pleased when Jesus Christ is recognized as the Lord of our nation. God is pleased when we exalt the name of Jesus Christ. And lastly, we exalt his name because of his special position among the believers. So that he himself might come to have first place in everything. The purpose of the church, therefore the purpose of this church, is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we can actually answer it. Because of his unique personhood. He is fully God and fully man. And there has never been a man who's ever walked the face of the earth that can compare to the Lord Jesus Christ.
because of his preeminence, because he is first, he is special. There is nobody else like him. Because of his power, he created all things. Because of his preexistence, he is the eternal God. Because of his wonderful providence, he holds it all together. He's the glue of the universe. He's the glue of my life. 25 years ago to this very day, I recognize what God said is true in my life, that I was a sinner in need of forgiveness. And I asked God to forgive me. And I believed what he said about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that he loved me and he gave himself for me on the cross. And that he rose again three days later. And if I would just trust in him, I would become a child of God by believing in his name. 25 years ago to this very day. And I want to stand it for you today. And I want to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away and all things become new. There isn't a person that I grew up with, that I went to school with, that I played ball with, that would ever anticipated me standing here before you today <laughs> teaching the Word of God. And I would be accounted among those who would have had the same types of doubts. But I am here to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ because of His place of authority in the church and in my life, because of His special position, that He would be first in all things. Who gets the glory in your life? May I suggest that you give all the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. That we develop a habit of exalting Jesus before the world and not taking the easy way out by saying God has blessed or the Lord has done this or that. But the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. In Jeremiah 9, we read in verses 23 and 24 in closing, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Let a man who boasts, boast of this. Let him boast of Jesus and him crucified. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we exalt him with our lips and with our life. May the tongue of our mouth and the tongue of our shoe go in the same direction so that as others see our good works, they will glorify our Father who is in heaven. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.